it's said that after his enlightenment, the Buddha had this kind of ability to sort of survey the world, to get a sense for things on this large scale. And it's said that he, when he did this, he saw beings all over, all different walks of life and, and everywhere around the world trying to find happiness, desperately seeking happiness, and at the same time doing the very thing that caused them to suffer. And it said that it was in part seeing this that inspired him to try to offer something that would address this, this conundrum, the situation. And if he were alive today and surveyed the world, he'd see the same thing playing itself out. And all the stuff we get up to, all the shenanigans we get up to as a species, some of it's pretty wild and weird, is the same movement playing itself out over and over. This is this endless pursuit of happiness, satisfaction, contentment, however you want to describe it. And it's very, it's so poignant. Because there's obviously a lot of confusion about where to look for happiness, how to find it. And, and we share this wish to be happy, all the different ways we might conceive of that with all beings everywhere. this movement of heart. And, and if we've committed to following this path of practice for the long run or in a, in a way where we want to take it to some real depth, it's probably become clear to us that the happiness that we would seek, that we're interested in, is not just feeling a little more comfortable in our lives. We're looking for something deeper than that something more profound, something more lasting, what we might call the happiness of peace, a deep kind of contentment that is not easily shaken by all the changes that come in a life. So where do we, where do we look for this? And this is our something in the terrain of this has to be some part of what would bring one to this practice and inspire us to come on retreat, this search. Where do I look for some real lasting happiness, peace, ease? This is a quotation from Sharon Salzberg, who's one of the founders of IMS, kind of a meta-specialist, a really great teacher. In some ways, our greatest ally in this practice is our wish to be happy. This wish functions as a homing instinct for freedom when we can unite it with understanding what actually brings us happiness. But sometimes we may feel that we do not really deserve happiness. We may almost feel ashamed of wanting it. Yet this wish is one of the finest things about us opening the door to transcending our limited lives. And just for a moment, touch into 
something that feels like a connection to your wish to be happy, or to be at ease, to be at peace, however that might show up for you. Do you see this as one of the finest things about you? I just love that possibility. And can you see this as one of the keys that opens the door to the deepest wisdom, to transcendent understanding, opens the door to insight? This homing instinct for freedom. And so what this is, is what we're doing here is uniting this, this wish for happiness or peace with some connection or understanding of what might actually bring that. Because <laughs> we get up to so many weird things trying to find it, this pursuit. And, and this is the, the rolling on, <laughs> the endless wandering of beings, seeking happiness, doing the things that bring suffering. So we, we need, in order to have this move in a good direction, we need to really bring some understanding to what's going on here. And so this is a way of seeing what we're doing here is uniting this beautiful wish, one of the finest things about us, with hopefully some understanding of where to look, where to actually look. And so in my mind, this leads to an important consideration for many of us, maybe almost all of us, in terms of the way we approach this practice. Because we can come to meditation, come to a retreat with some attitudes that we might not see. We may see ourselves as a person who's confused or with a lot of problems. Things we see that are causing us stress and struggle, unhappiness in our lives. And, and we think of this, well, this is confusion is something I have to understand and overcome and see through. We see ourselves as I'm someone with a lot of problems. I need to fix myself. I need to improve myself. And then I can be okay and become whole. We may have been telling ourselves stories for years about all the things that are wrong with us or someone else has told us maybe since we were little that there was something wrong with us, that we were wrong somehow. And we've woven these stories and these perceptions into the very fabric of our existence. And we just don't even see that it's there and operating. And they often limit us or reinforce feelings of not being worthy, or as Sharon said, a feeling that we don't deserve to be happy, uh, almost ashamed of even wanting it. Would we ever even really express it to someone else? These are, uh, this is a quotation from someone named Bob Sharples. Don't know anything about the person, but it's suggesting a way to approach our practice that I 
I think might have some resonance for some of us. He said, don't meditate to fix yourself, to heal yourself, to improve yourself, or to redeem yourself. Rather do it as an act of love, of deep, warm friendship to yourself. In this way, there is no longer any need for the subtle aggression of self-improvement, for the endless guilt of not doing enough. It offers the possibility of an end to the ceaseless round of trying so hard that wraps so many people's lives in a knot. Instead, see meditation as an act of love. What does he say? An act of deep, warm friendship to yourself. See it as an act of love. And these, there's a lot of kindness in those word, but there's words, but there's something extremely important, really essential for us to consider. Because if we approach our practice with all good intentions as a self-improvement project, as something to, to fix ourselves, even to heal ourselves, we can reinforce this attitude that there's something wrong with us. It's our whole practice rests on an erroneous view because there's nothing wrong with anyone in this room. There's nothing, has never been anything wrong with anyone who's ever come into this room. But this is a a particularly subtle and I think insidious kind of self-cruelty because it comes disguised as the truth and maybe even as something wholesome. And yet we're here for transformation. That's real. And we do have stress and struggle and we do things, see things operating in our lives that do cause us stress and, and to suffer. But that doesn't mean there's something wrong with us. So if we can unhook from anything around this sense, that's so important. So it's not that healing doesn't occur, it can and it does. The Buddha has been described as the greatest of all physicians. That's one sort of name that has been given to the Buddha. The great healer, the greatest physician of all. And the Dhamma has been likened to the best of all medicines. <laughs> these these ways of, of looking at it, expressing that, these are... are or have been there over the ages. And maybe it is fitting and appropriate to see this practice as a kind of healing on the deepest level. But to approach our practice with the often unseen attitude that we're somehow flawed or wrong is at best a subtle aggression. I think that's what one of the ways that Ba, that quotation expressed it at best. And sometimes it's a kind of inner violence towards ourselves, an inner cruelty. So if we undertake the practice of meditation as an act of love, as was suggested, it's so beautiful, think of it that way. Then it's like this gift we're offering to ourselves and then through that we offer it to all beings. What a great thing 
to see it that way. Radically can radically change our whole approach to this walking this path. Lead us to a place that's actually sustainable and maybe even joyful. And giving ourselves a gift over and over. Even when it's really hard, we can come back to some connection to this. Again, a few more words from Sharon Salzberg. When we feel love, our mind is expansive and open enough to include the entirety of life in full awareness, both its pleasures and its pains. We feel neither betrayed by pain or overcome by it. And thus we can contact that which is undamaged within us, regardless of the situation. Metta sees truly that our integrity is inviolate no matter what our life situation may be. That within us, us, which is undamaged, this is such a profound possibility of walking this path is that we connect with this inner integrity that is not now, never has been, is not possibly ever able to be damaged or wrong. It's inviolate. It cannot be violated or changed. It's undamaged, unbroken, whole. And its very essence is love and connection. And when we can connect to this inner integrity, there's this beautiful possibility that we've all been pointing to in different ways that we might actually truly befriend our own mind and heart. I want to share a poem. This is uh, by a friend named Matty Weingast. And he wrote a beautiful book of interpretations based on poems by the early uh, nuns, based on poems from a collection called the Terigata. These are uh, verses. Uh, some, one of, I think one of you read something from the Terigata or mentioned it this retreat. I don't remember. Anyway, these are the the very earliest nuns who were practicing at the time. Uh, Rebecca read, uh, oh, the Enlightenment poem from the uh, Japanese nun, I think it was. So it's similar to that kind of thing, an utterance at the moment of awakening, of a deep awakening. And uh, Maddie wrote these beautiful uh, interpretations based on those. This is from a poem by a nun named Mitta, and the word... Mitta means friend, and it's very closely, shares a root with the word metta. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen, I have followed this path of friendship to its end, and I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. When you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. During the uh, 
the 1980s into the very early 90s, I was living and working in San Francisco, California, and I uh, would volunteer with a uh, research project that was studying the migration of hawks through the area of the Golden Gate. Those of you who know that area where San Francisco Bay is, there's a narrow opening where the Golden Gate Bridge goes across from San Francisco to Marin County. And um, the hawks congregate, they, they migrate up and down the coast. And they don't really, most hawks don't like to fly over expanses of open water. Uh, but it's narrow enough there, I can see the other side, <laughs> they'll do it. And so they tend to gather in some large numbers in the in the hills, the Marin Headlands, it's called. It's a hilly area there. Some of you might have been there. It's quite beautiful. And so we would, we were counting numbers, and we would also uh, very carefully trap hawks and ban them, and you know, check them for parasites and weigh them and make sure their healthy health was good. And it was all um, in service of preserving habitat and helping their them to thrive. And so at that time, sometimes I had to learn how to hold a red-tailed hawk. (laughs) Well, they're big. They've got probably almost a four-foot wingspan when they're really stretched out. We see them around here now and then. And they they can put their talon right through your thumb real easy, (laughs) nail and all. And they don't know that you're on their side. They just know they've been caught. (laughs) So you have to hold them firmly, but they are birds, and birds have hollow bones. That's why they're light enough to fly. (laughs) So you have to hold them tenderly and carefully because you don't want them to flap around and hurt themselves. The last thing you'd want to do would cause them to hurt themselves. And then you let them go. So that combination of a certain kind of gentle firmness and tenderness. That's a, to me, a really nice image for how we should treat our own mind and heart. So we don't want to necessarily let the mind run all over the place. We want to have some sense of of care in that regard, but we don't want to crush it and and break its hollow bones so that it can't fly. That's the last thing we want to do. So err on the side of tenderness, at least. But a little, a few little gentle boundaries in there, or at least suggestions. I think probably each one of us at some time over these days together has used this image of planting seeds as an illustration for what we're doing in this practice. I think it's a great one. I know I used it, and I'm pretty sure Roxanne did just yesterday. And so we're planting the seeds of understanding, of love, goodwill, connection, seeds of freedom. Every time mindfulness re-arises, every time the wish, may I be happy, may you be happy and safe, each one of those is a seed. (laughs) We plant those seeds with this intention, this beautiful intention and the the power of an intention in the mind and heart is huge. And seeds are amazing things. A single seed, 
has the potential to bring about a huge tree covered with thousands of fruits and flowers and more seeds. And we don't know when the seeds we're planting are going to sprout and arise and bear fruit. That's going to happen not on our timetable necessarily. All we can do is plant them with as much care and water them well. There's a book that uh, I've found some beautiful quotations from, from a researcher and an author named Hope Jaron. And the book is called Lab Girl. I'm going to read a, f- a few things from that. A seed knows how to wait. Most seeds wait at least a year before starting to grow. A cherry seed can wait for a hundred years, no problem. What exactly each seed is waiting for is known only to that seed. A seed is alive while it waits. Every acorn on the ground is just as alive as the the 300-year-old oak tree that towers over it. Lots of oaks and acorns around here. After scientists broke open the coat of a lotus seed, Nelumbo nucifera, and coddled the embryo into growth, they kept the empty husk. When they radiocarbon dated this discarded outer shell, they discovered that their seedling had been waiting for them within a peat bog in China for no less than 2,000 years. This tiny seed had stubbornly kept up the hope of its own future while entire human civilizations rose and fell. And then one day this little plant's yearning finally burst forth within a laboratory. I wonder where it is right now. Each beginning is the end of a waiting. We're each given exactly one chance to be. Each of us is both impossible and inevitable. Every, every replete tree was first a seed that waited. Maybe that's what we're doing, is learning how to wait. Maybe that's what this practice is about. You know, and we just don't see what's happening. We're so inclined to be assessing, looking, how's it going? We don't know what's happening. In this tradition, it's said that there are these 10 beautiful, noble qualities. Uh, Roxanne spoke about them yesterday, these wholesome, beautiful qualities that we gather together when she was talking about the raft. These are called the paramis, and it's said that the Buddha developed these over countless lifetimes. And there are these uh, collection of stories. Sometimes I like to tell stories of the 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 Buddha-to-be, the Bodhisattva, in different lifetimes, taking birth often as a different kind of an animal or um, in different circumstances and perfecting these. Um, I'll list them. We've mentioned them all in different times, uh, or most of them. Dana, giving or generosity. Sila, ethical conduct. Nakama, renunciation. Panya, wisdom or insight. Virya, energy effort, kanti, patience, satcha, truthfulness, aditana, resolve or determination, metta, goodwill, and upeka, equanimity. These are the ten paramis. 
And so one way we can see the culmination of this path and practice is when these are brought to perfection, as is described in the, in the case well, of the Buddha. These were perfected. <laughs> and we can see when the mind is no longer under the sway of the energies of greed, hatred, and delusion, then these, these are there. These are what remain in their perfection. And I think it's great to, to see our practice in this way because it can really expand what we think of as practice. You know, we get very focused on this meditation and all of our assessments of how we're doing at it. Usually we think we're not doing very well. Sometimes we think we're doing great. Rarely though. But it can help us cut through this tendency to be constantly assessing, judging, evaluating, looking for progress, and mentally comparing ourselves with either ourselves in the past or everyone around us or someone we read about or you know, is it is it working? Am I getting it? Everyone else seems to be getting it. What if they get it all? There's none left for me. You know, we judge ourselves, judge our experience, and then judge ourselves based on our perception of our experience. It's not right, it's not good, whatever. And we miss all the good qualities <laughs> we're developing just by coming back and starting again, just by showing up. I mean, what if, what if this whole retreat is just about patience or Resolve and determination. Are you down with that? Is that okay? What about what if, what if this whole lifetime is just about patience and resolve, or truthfulness, or energy, or metta? You okay with that? Is that all right? We're so we're in such a hurry. We say, okay, I'm just gonna start again. This whole life, I'm just gonna. It's just me developing this sense of resolve to start to begin again. Is that good enough? You know, we can take this this sense, okay, I'm in this for the long haul here, and we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Maybe tomorrow... They'll all, you know, we're like, it's like putting drops in a, an earthenware, big earthenware jug. And you don't know when it's, it's going to look the same, whether there's a little puddle in the bottom or it's almost going to spill over because it's almost full. And we think we know. Seeing our practice in this way of this offering of love seeing it in terms of the development of the paramis and seeing it as this gift to ourselves in the ways I've been talking about it. Do it as a warm act of friendship. It brings the mind and the heart together in this great way. There's a quotation from the, uh, the teacher Krishnamurti. When the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It is really then limitless not only in its capacity to think and act efficiently, but also in its sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. 
It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It is like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It is inexhaustible. Without love, there is not freedom. Without love, freedom is merely an idea which has no value at all. So in some essential way, the practice of freedom is the practice of love and the practice of love is the practice of freedom. They're going to the same place. And they flow together as this path unfolds. And they're, they're like strands of a cable that are woven together and strengthen one another or like currents in a river that flow together. And they come together and they flow and mix and become one. They merge. This is from Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, a beloved Indian teacher from the last century. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. I'll read it again. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. The, the wisdom of I am nothing isn't some bleak emptiness, some kind of annihilation or disintegration or something. Rather, it points to this deep inner experience, this fulfillment of wisdom, and the release of that is characterized by this clear, unrestricted spaciousness, the emptiness of open space, a hardened mind that is not restricted by the separation of self and other. So if we're nothing in this way, then There are no barriers to the expression of love. Nothing gets in the way of that. Kindness, care, compassion, they just arise within that open space. And so if we're nothing in that way, we're inevitably everything because ultimately there's no distinction between our own happiness and the happiness of others. We see ultimately that they're one and the same thing. Maybe sometimes we've had the the great good fortune to meet people or beings who just seem to embody the qualities of love and kindness. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, people who don't have any idea who he is just are drawn to him. He just seems to emanate this love. There was a monk I used to see here sometimes and used to visit near here named Mahagosananda. He was the, the Sangha Raja, king of the Sangha of Cambodia. He was, tireless crusader for uh, ridding that area of Cambodia from landmines. He was, the Dalai Lama nominated him for the Nobel Peace Prize five times. He should have won it. Beloved. I used to go visit him. He, he ended his life not far from here at a small Cambodian monastery. And I, 
I went to see him near, as his life was coming to an end, he, he had uh, Alzheimer's or some kind of severe dementia. And so a lot of his cognitive abilities kind of went away, <coughs> but uh, just love was left. I remember the last time I saw him, I went there and the monk who was kind of his his attendant in the room outside in the in the little hut he was living so simply said oh he's he's in his room you can go say hello and i went in i just wanted to pay respects he did not know me we were not close in that way and uh when i came in he just started beaming and he he pulled some a bar of soap and some other little things from his shelf and gave me the presents and it brings up a lot of emotion just to remember this time. It was just like being bathed in love and light. And people who knew him at that time said, you know, that's all that was left. There's a beautiful photograph at Spirit Rock uh, Meditation Center, and some of you might have seen it. It's Mahagosananda and the Dalai Lama bowing to one another. And they're just, they're over, they're, they're bent completely over. Each one is trying to get lower <laughs> to, show, uh, <clears throat> to show the greater respect. You know, people like this who seem to embody this quality, they point to the possibility that it's actually one can live from a place of unconditional love. And that's a, that this is a source of such strength and courage and beauty for our lives. Hmm. Someone, a friend of mine, told me a few years ago that on her Facebook page, which I don't really know what that is. I'm an old guy. never looked at Facebook in my life. But I guess you say stuff about yourself there. And she changed her religion to kindness in honor of uh, the Dalai Lama once saying, my religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. And that sounds kind of sweet. You could imagine it in the, in the a greeting card or something. <laughs> Probably is in a greeting card. <laughs> but there's a profound understanding there that we can overlook. If we think of religion as the expression in the world of the deepest spiritual truths and understandings, then we might begin to touch what His Holiness was uh, pointing to. When, when the deepest truths are understood and integrated into our very being, then the response of kindness, kindness is our religion, is just, we don't have to work at that, that just is what's there. Like Mahagosananda. It was just, that's what was there. It's not a choice or decision. It's just the expression of the awakened mind and heart. So I want to leave you with, uh, I want to share one of my very, my most favorite poems that for me captures something, something about the energy of metta that I find here. And it's, has some strange and beautiful imagery and quirkiness that appeals to my my mind. And this is called the Initiation Song from the Finder's Lodge. <coughs> Excuse me. 
by Ursula K. Le Guin. Please bring strange things. Please come bringing new things. Let very old things come into your hands. Let what you do not know come into your eyes. Let desert sand harden your feet. Let the arch of your feet be the mountains. Let the paths of your fingertips be your maps. Let the ways you go be the lines on your palms. Let there be deep snow in your in-breathing and your out-breath be the shining of ice. May your mouth contain the shapes of strange words. May you smell food cooking you have not eaten. May the spring of a foreign river be your navel. May your soul be at home (coughs) where there are no houses. Walk carefully, well-loved one. Walk mindfully, well-loved one. Walk fearlessly, well-loved one. Return with us, return to us. Be always coming home. So this is my wish for you now and always, that you be always coming home. Oh, thank you for coming and sharing this time for your kind attention. And there's tea time. Food's been good, even though it's simple and the simple offerings in the evening, it's been very good. So uh, I wish you well and ease and uh, enjoy the meal if you're eating. And we'll gather again. What's the next thing? Is it the. What's happening here? The metta sitting at seven. But you walk. Well, the the practice doesn't stop. (laughs) But we'll gather in the hall again at seven. So see you then.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.